What is going on, everyone? It is Thursday, August 5th, um, and tonight uh, we have our guest from the state of Florida. I made a mistake uh, pre-show. Um, we have Florida attorney Leslie Ann, and how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, I don't want to butcher That's okay. Uh, Ferdorigos. Ferdorigos. Okay. Yeah. So we have Florida attorney Leslie Ann Ferdorigos um, here to talk about the state of Florida and then some some general tips, tricks, help for parents navigating the family law court system. So, uh, Leslie, thank you for joining us. I know it's it's 8 p.m. on um, on the East Coast right now, so it's a little bit later for you guys. Um, so how's our day going? Good, good. I actually um, took a week off this week. <laughs> and not only, I had COVID last week, so... Um, it kind of put me into, you know, I was out of commission for a good four days and um, I'm much better this week, but I'm, I took a week off because I, I was working seven days a week this year with no break. So <laughs> I, I feel you on that. I got a, uh, I, I took today. I didn't do any consultations, didn't go into the office, didn't do anything. Just needed a reset after uh, three consecutive days of being in court. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> We'll go ahead and we will hop right in. So we'll, we'll start by talking about the state of Florida. And as always, I always reference the uh, National Parents Organization scorecard um, when it comes to grading custody laws in terms of equal and shared parenting. So NPO gives Florida a C plus. Uh, C, uh, C plus is slightly above average. Uh, the median falls at a C and about 25 states have either a C minus, C or C plus. So Florida firmly in the middle of the country in terms of how those laws work out. So you're on the ground day in, day out. Um, what does family court look like specifically for dads in the state of Florida? You know, um, I, I'm in a unique situation because I cover the whole state of Florida, whereas most attorneys will cover, you know, maybe like a small geographic reach, couple counties, you know, within yeah. close proximity. So I have the ability to analyze Florida, you know, across the whole state because I have cases in almost every county. Um, it really comes down to the judge. And I would say there's certain counties that are uh, a little more and you don't, they don't want to ever say that it's pro mom, right. Or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but you, you tend to see, um, you know, I would say more, more in the paternity cases, um, where the mom would have had the child, you know, um, and then it's up to the father to have to petition the court to get rights over the child. Um, but there are certain counties that are a little, uh, more difficult, I think for, for fathers. Yeah, and we, we can we can break that down a little more granular. I think you see this, the same thing in the state of California. I did. I lived in Miami for about a year, so um, pretty familiar with the state. Uh, so I'm taking it as the more urban areas. You're getting a little bit different than if you are in the middle of the state, maybe in North Florida, in the more more rural areas. Yeah, yeah, you get. Um, I've seen um, a big difference with Miami Dade, uh, Broward, which is you know towards south you know south florida area as opposed to um say brevard county which would be on the east coast but a lot farther north um it's not as um i mean brevard county is a big county 
but mm -hmm. you know it's not anything like Miami Dade or Broward. You know, so you do see a difference. I I, I think you do. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you, you see the same thing out here. I, I as well. I have cases across the state, so. I'm located in one of the most popular, the, probably the biggest population center in the United States, being in, in Southern California, being in Orange County, LA County, the Inland Empire, very highly populated, lots of judges, a lot of very, we'll call them progressive thinkers in a lot of ways. Um, but if you go to Central California, you go up north, it may be a one or two judge courthouse, and they may not have opened the family code or looked at any of the case law in 20 years. Yeah, no. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And then, you know, we, we have a difference, um, you know, in uh, case law, you know, with each different county, um, you know, some of them are a little more liberal, you know, um, in their own cases, like with attorney fees, for instance, Miami-Dade has a different standard that they go by to any other county <laughs> when it comes to attorney fees. And then they, they heavily rely on the um, appellate court law, you know, for their district. So you do see some differentiation, you know, depending on the county. Okay. So that, so essentially down South, they're saying there's a, there, it's a little more, I'll call it sophisticated in terms of the judges are, more, are, are very aware of what's happened at the appellate courts and what guides their decisions. You know, I, I think um, I, I see that most people, well, I always bring about the case law, you know, when I, whenever I come into a court, if I'm arguing something, I always try to educate the court with the case law. Um, I've noticed in South Florida, you know, I could educate the case law, you know, or educate court with certain cases that are pretty black and white, and they still will rule against it, forcing you to have to do an appeal. Um, as opposed to some other counties that I could bring up the case law and they, they would immediately make sure that their ruling was, in, you know, would comport with to the case law. But I've noticed in, in South Florida, um, it's not so much like that. Gotcha. Okay. And is there, you, you mentioned around attorney's fees, you had completely different local rules. Does it, do those things go beyond attorney's fees? Are there, I know like, for example, I'll use an example in the state of Ohio, each county has their own standard in terms of what the, what the temporary custody order should be. Do you see that in Miami or I mean, not um, Miami, but in Florida? I, yeah, I do see a difference. Um, it, wh where I really see a difference is when a county, um, believes something is an emergency, right? Because mo most of the, um, the cases that I've had where a parent has become, you know, estranged or alienated from a child, um, it a lot of times it starts with an emergency ex parte motion um, with no hearing. And, you know, there's certain counties that you'll try to file an emergency and they, they'll say, nope, it's not, you know, there's not an immediate physical danger. Um, it's not an emergency. There, we're not going to be, you know, expediting a hearing on this and they'll just flat out deny an emergency motion where in south florida there could be something that you would think there's no way the court will find this to be an emergency and the next thing you know you're getting told oh in 30 minutes you're going into an emergency hearing on this motion because the court deems it to be an emergency um mm -hmm. so i noticed different counties deem emergencies differently Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So we'll, we'll turn to kind of the more, so let's just say a father comes into your office, you're doing a zoom consultation, whatever it may be. So 
if they're about to, let's just say the, the wife has filed for divorce and they have kids, what, what does the process look like in the state of Florida? Well, you know, it really, I mean, a lot of times if you're going, if, if it's a divorce situation, they usually do start them out looking at pretty even playing fields, pretty even grounds um, where both parents should have the right to spend time and enjoy overnights with their children. Um, it's usually when the allegations start, um, which always amazes me that you can be married to somebody and everything was fine. And the minute you go through divorce, all of a sudden, this person's a sexual abuser. This person's that all of a sudden you have these outlandish allegations that come about. And, um, that's when I see the playing field change is when those allegations start and they usually will start with an emergency motion. And the next thing you know, there's no due process because there wasn't a hearing and the emergency was granted, erring on the side of caution for the child. And then the courts are so backed up before you know it. One of the parents um, and it's, you know, usually, um, you know, a lot of times it's fathers, you know, and you, you always hear um, either domestic violence allegations, you know, or all of a sudden sexual abuse allegations will, will come into fruition. Um, and then the next thing you know, dad is without his kids based on a court, you know, ordering um, the suspension of time sharing based on an ex parte emergency motion. So that's different, a different dynamic than, say, a paternity case, you know, when you're when you're dealing you know, dissolution of marriage case versus a paternity case and, and how the dynamics play out in that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, that, that's one of the things that I always have to advise clients on especially when they're going to be the ones that file first. I'll ask them, I'm like, is she the type of person that's going to get very angry? Is she going to be upset that you did this, even if you've discussed it? Because it always seems like, uh, like you said, it could be nine years, 14 years, 18 years of marriage. And then the minute anything ends up in court or the minute there's going to be a custody decision made, all of a sudden uh, he's abused me, he's hit me, he's done this. And in the state of California, the temporary pretty regularly gets granted and it's going to be three, three to four weeks before you're in front of a judge. Yeah. Florida, it's even, it's crazy. It's, it can go for months, months. And it, yeah. it's sad. And then by the time, you know, you, you get around to um, getting time sharing the next, then all of a sudden, oh, the child needs adjustment period. They need reunification because they haven't seen dad in so long, you know? Um, mm -hmm which bothers that that's an issue that bothers me too. It's like, you know, I mean, now you, you know, because of the weight, you know, in Florida, cause the courts are so backed up. Um, the next thing, you know, months will go by and now you need reunification therapy, you know, and it just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I it's, same thing happens out here. I've seen them last two or three years where a TRO stays in place for whatever reason. And I, and we, we, I guess we can kind of dive into this. I, I'm of the opinion that a lot of times the the courts lay on the supervised visitation is the one that drives me crazy, yeah. especially especially in situations either the couple live together for a period of time or they've been married for 10 years and they have a, a six and an eight year old. And then the mom goes into court and says he needs supervised visitation. Yeah. Well, He's, he's been a parent and been around the child or children for X number of years, their entire life. But now he needs supervised visitation. Um, yeah. 
that that's one of the thing the 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 that's one of the things that always miss me. It seems to be a go to, and and I don't I, I represent exclusively women. I, I mean exclusively men, so I don't necessarily get that other perspective. But sometimes I feel like it's just kind of the token. Let's slap that on there and see what happens in a lot of cases. Yeah. So we'll we'll kind of uh, um, in terms of the domestic violence. So you said that things get backed up in the state of Florida. So if there's a domestic violence allegation, TRO gets granted. How long do those typically stay in effect? How long does it take you to get in front of a judge? Well, I mean, by law, you're supposed to, I don't know the, I think it's like 14 days or something. I I, I don't know the exact date, but it's around, I'd have to look it up, but it's around yeah, like California's 21 days, I believe. Yeah. It's like there, it, you have to be in front of a judge with a hearing by a certain date um, when you're dealing with a TRO. Um, but a lot of times you'll see where somebody will continue the hearing, you know, because for whatever reason, or the, the notice wasn't, you know, served on the other side or the next, you know, so, so there's, I've seen cases where things have been continued for months and months and months, and they still haven't had a, their due process with an evidentiary hearing on a TRO and the temporary TRO will, you know, the temporary restraining order will stay in place, obviously, until, you know, a permanent one is put into place. So, yeah. And then that's the situation where all of a sudden, if it gets granted or it doesn't, oh, he hasn't seen the kids in five months. We need some sort of transition period and supervised visitation before any, anything can happen. So staying, staying in that same kind of uh, vein, um, when, when someone sits down in front of you and and it may be one of those cases to see a pattern where it's like, there potentially could be these allegations. What advice would you, you give dads on how to navigate either after the allegations been made or in a situation where you kind of see a pattern where there's probably going to be one of these coming down the road? Um, what I try to do is, um, have if if they believe that that allegations are going to be made i would always advise um to inform the person that you're recording them because we we were a two consent state and let them know that anytime i'm around you alone i'm recording so i'm not going to have any allegations right and inform them that you're going to record um or have a witness present so that you're not alone with the person that you believe is going to make an allegation um and i I would heavily encourage that because if you, you know, it's when people are alone together, you know, um, it's a, he said, she said, and it's real easy for somebody just to come up with an allegation or provoke something. And then a person just literally maybe goes like that. And the next thing, you know, wife falls down. Right. And next thing you know, Oh, it's domestic violence. Um, I would just say, if you, if you think that, that your significant other is capable of making those allegations, make sure that you're not alone with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that's always a tough one. And, and a lot of guys come into it blind and you have to say, this isn't criminal court. This isn't beyond reasonable doubt where yeah. he said, she said, isn't going to be enough. This is preponderance of the evidence where one feather falls on the other side um, in the judge's opinion. And all of a sudden you can get, in California up to a five-year domestic violence restraining order granted. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and it got, I don't know what, I, I guess I probably, I haven't looked at this in the state of Florida In California. If you get a, have a domestic violence restraining order granted against you, there's a presumption you shouldn't have custody. Um, yeah. Any form of custody. It's just visitation. They, they, it, 
they try if as long as the um, restraining order doesn't allege that harm has been done to the children. You know, like if it was in a if it was a restraining order in, which involves say mom and child, then yes, you're in a predicament at that point where you're not going to be able to see your kids. But if they do have, um, you know, it, it where it's only say against, you know, it's for the protection of the wife then the courts here are pretty good about making sure that there that there is communication in regards to co-parenting and time spent you know time mm -hmm. caring for the for the father they they are pretty good about that and that seems like the common sense solution here in california there's really no delineation if there if you want to find that there's domestic violence this is what has to happen it doesn't matter if the children weren't involved or anything. And California even goes as low as it's disturbing one's peace where text messages, too many phone calls, different things like that could land you with the restraining order. Wow. Yeah. So um, that that's that, that's one of the, the big pieces that even if there's not allegations that I'm, I'm always very upfront, hey, there's a, I would say 75% of my clients have either been had allegations against them or currently have a DVRO against them that May a lot of them had it before before I took over representing them, but it's a serious. It's domestic violence is a serious issue, and it's unfortunate that sometimes the system gets weaponized like that. So, uh, as we kind of wrap up the specifically about the state of Florida, um, is there anything unique or anything that like Florida dads should definitely be aware of that that happens in the state of Florida to kind of help them navigate through the process? You know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily unique. And the, the reason being is because I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to various people, you know, in other states, and it seems to be just um, a common problem, <laughs> uh, you know, across the board. Um, but as far as, you know, navigating the system, um, again, I, I, I see a problem with paternity cases. And to me, it seems extremely unjust um, that a father, you know, has to petition the court for rights to see his children or his child. And all this time, um, a mom can just hold on to the child and the father doesn't get the ability to even see the child until there's, say, a temporary order put into place. Um, or you, you go through the, the whole process of the petition, which could take up to a year before you get a trial date if you don't get a settlement sooner. Um, so to me, that, you know, I feel like with science and technology these days, you could find out right away if, if, if the child is yours, you know. Um, and I think that there should be time sharing, uh, you know, rights put into place right away for, for both parents at that point. Um, so that I think it's a problem that is not just unique to Florida. Uh, it, it would be, you know, across the board in many other states. But I do see, you know, I do think there definitely needs to be reform there because I've had cases in Florida that have been on the docket. Now, mind you, I came in later. I would never have allowed a case to sit five years without a trial. So I want to make sure that I, I'm, you know, I'm not part of that issue. But I've had people come to me that have filed petitions for paternity and their case is on the docket now with no trial date for five years. And now their kid is five years old. They still have no relationship. Um, and to me, that's, you know, I think that's an issue. Um, and that goes, 
you know, hand in hand with the courts being backed up. Um, now, I know that Florida has done an administrative order on a civil end, not necessarily family law, but, but more civil, like personal injury cases where they must move the case to closure within 15 months. So there is, you know, some stuff being done. Now, whether or not that filtrates, you know, into the family law arena, it really needs to because no case should be sitting on a docket for five years. So in Florida is, so in California, if, if the father signs the volunteer, it's called voluntary declaration of paternity and they're on the birth certificate, they have the same rights as the mom, even if they are unmarried when the child is born. And so in Florida, if you're not married, there's no mechanism. It's you have to go to court. Yeah. There's no mechanism to get, um, to get time sharing. You have to petition the court to get an order um, to afford you the ability to have time sharing. Gotcha. So that, yeah. I guess that's something that, uh, that California, if you're on the birth certificate, a lot of time, I guess a lot of the situation I see here with that is mom will take the kid and withhold the child from the father. And you tell the father, Hey, you have the same exact rights in theory, there's no court order. So you can do the same exact thing. But I've never once had a father say, that's what I'm going to do, or that's what I would be willing to do. While it seems very, very common for, for the mother to have to be willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So and then, and then that goes back to the action. I think one of the biggest mistakes I see fathers make is they don't take immediate action. So if you're an unmarried father in the state of Florida, every day you wait to take action on that is another day further away from you being able to get into court and to get some form of custody and visitation. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we'll do right now is we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then we will be back on the other side to talk a little more um, navigating the Florida uh, family courts. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $35 a month. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. What is going on, guys? We are back now to, to uh, chat a little more with Florida attorney Lisa Ann Federigos. Did I get that right? So we, we've, we've covered a little bit in terms of, Oh, we got a visitor. We got a little one. I know. Yes. I it's, I'm waiting for my husband to get home. <laughs> perfectly yeah. fine. Perfectly fine. So yeah. um, as, as the, the process kind of moves through, so you've mentioned in the state of Florida and many other states that the process moves extremely slow and you've seen paternity cases where, it's five years in. I, I'm sorry, Chris, Chris Cole just commented. I called you Lisa. I'm sorry, Leslie. Okay. Um, my, my apologies. I, I saw the little one uh, coming into the room distracted. Um, 
what can um, what can a dad do? So obviously you don't want this to drag on and that happens so frequently. What can a father do um, to prevent those type of things from happening? Or what can they have their attorney do to prevent those type of things from happening? Well, I mean, you, you just need to um, know kind of like the milestones that happen in a case to make sure that everything is moving forward. Um, make sure that you get your discovery in because discovery is where, you know, there, there seems to be a big fight and a big delay. Um, you know, I always tell my clients, you got to keep, you got to get your discovery in. Like we have mandatory disclosures in Florida that need to uh, be turned in. Um, and without these certain disclosures, you can't get to mediation. Uh, in a lot of counties, they'll say, oh, you don't have this yet. You haven't exchanged the mandatory disclosures. We can't, you know, go ahead and set your mediation. Um, and, you, you know, to get, I always put it together you know, like, you know, you've got your initial pleading, you've got your service of process, your acceptance, your counter petition, um, then you go into your discovery. And then, you know, I always timing in my head, we should be in a mediation about four months after the case has been initiated and the other party has been served with process. And then, of course, if you um, don't settle at mediation, then I immediately will file a notice for a pretrial conference to get a trial date. Um, I always tell my clients my goal is to get, you know, as long as we don't run into like crazy discovery issues to get your case, if it's not settled, um, get a trial date within nine to 12 months of the time that the petition has been filed. So you just need to have some awareness on how long a normal petition takes to get from start to finish. And when you start to realize that you don't have, say, a mediation that's been set, you know, um, within four months, five months, you know, the initial filing of the petition, I would question your attorney, you know, what 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 is this looking like? You know, when are we getting to mediation? Um, you know, and of course, you know, if mediation, you don't settle, you know, when are we going to get a trial date? Are we going to be put on the pretrial docket? Because I just think it's people not having the, the awareness of um, how a case should flow, you know, from start to finish. They don't realize, you know, the different milestones that must happen to get to a trial date. So I think just knowledge on those those aspects. It makes sense. So essentially in the state of Florida, there's a checklist of things that have to occur for you to get to formal mediation. And then once you get through formal mediation, you actually have to take steps to get the pretrial conference and then ultimately have that final trial. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So let me, I, I'm, I'm pulling up a question here that kind of ties along with that. All right, so I can't find it, but it ha had to do with so you're go it had to do with mediation and going through the process. So um, most states require mediation in some form or another. What tips would you have for parents going into those me going into mediation, whether it be formal where you've hired a private mediator or going through that state mandated mediation process? Um, I always. Uh try to speak with my clients about all the issues in their case and what's the most important for them, what they're willing to negotiate on, you know, as far as what, what are they, and I tell them, you're going to have to give something up if you want to settle this, you know, you're not going to get everything that you want. 
but it's good to prioritize and figure out the most important thing that you want, what you're unwilling to, to bend on, and then be willing to give up something that you do have a right to, but you're willing to give it up so that you can get the case settled. Gotcha. And what does it, what is, what is in California, the mandatory mediation is, could end up just simply being 20 to 30 minutes with someone at the courthouse where you don't even meet with the other person. What does that in, in a uh, dissolution or a divorce case, what does that mediation look like? Is it, is it something that happens quickly or is it a days long process? Um, typically in Florida, it's, if you go with a court, mediator not a private mediator and um, they can schedule you up to four hours so they'll give you four hours to try to um, settle it um if you have a private mediator you can go all day um you know there's really no limitation when you have a private mediator um so it but i've never there it you always both both sides are always expected to be at a mediation um mm -hmm. you would never show up in florida um without the other side showing up as well. Yeah. Are our attorneys involved in that mediation process? Um, you know, it depends on the client, how much they want their, their attorney to be involved. Um, the client, it's really the client's mediation. So the attorney net doesn't have to be involved, but most, I find it most of my clients want me to be involved because they want to rattle ideas off, you know, and, and see my insight or what I believe, you know, uh, they should settle on or what rights they have and things like that. So, Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that's, that, that's another, a little bit of an oddball thing in terms of California attorneys aren't allowed. Wow. So it is, it is just the parties involved that go through that mandatory mediation process. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, it, it, it is a little interesting. It's a little nerve wracking. Uh, what, what did your client agree to or what did they say or what did they do in a mediation when you really aren't allowed to have touch points when it, when it comes to that? Yeah. <clears throat> So, so another, another piece you mentioned that's, that's required, not necessarily required, but I think is underutilized in, in family law is the discovery piece mm -hmm. um, and just finding information. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of times has to do with financial constraints when going through the process. Um, but when you're talking with, with a client about what we need to find out, what we need to, what information we need to look out for, what are something, what are some things that dads maybe should take to their attorneys that you found that may be useful to discover? Well, I mean, I always start with the petition and what's being alleged in the petition and in the counter petition. Um, I have four discovery methods and tools that I use in in most all of my cases and the reason is because i always anticipate i'm going to end up in trial so everything that i do is in anticipation that i'm going to go to trial um i'll do a request to produce on the allegations that are pled in the petition i want all tangible evidence because i don't want to be ambushed at trial um for the first time with tangible evidence you know validating the petition i want to see that ahead of time so that's one discovery tool is the allegations and the petition I'll ask um, or the counter petition, um, you know, from the other side. Um, then I will ask um, uh, interrogatories on expert, potential expert witnesses and potential lay witnesses 
so that I know what the other side plans on using um, ahead of time. So if I want to take depositions and things like that, um, I'll do a discovery tool, you know, to find out the witnesses that they intend to use. And I do this pretty early on. Um, then, of course, you have your financial component. I think this um, affects most fathers because you're dealing with child support. Um, I do extensive discovery on um, all the financials, you know, whether they have their own business or they don't have their own business or they, you know, whatever assets they have. So I do I, I do request to produce. Um, I've gone as far as uh, subpoenaing uh mortgage applications, uh, car loans, you know, because you can get a lot of financial discovery, you know, subpoenaing those sorts of records. Um, and then we've got uh, Florida standard interrogatories um, that are just general, like general questions and things mm -hmm. like that. So um, those are the pretty much the four um, discovery tools. But I, of course, it's not just limited to that because I always take depositions. Um, but I usually take depositions if I know for sure and for certain we're going to trial. And um, we in Florida, we have to do pretrial statement. Um, the other side will have to disclose all their witnesses. So if I know I'm going into a trial, I usually like to set the depositions of the witnesses. So th those are a little more technical. Each case is different. Um, but I, I really like the discovery tool of asking for all the tangible evidence of everything that's in a petition that has been alleged in a petition. Yeah, definitely. That that's the one thing that uh, not having. I, I was I was I guess traditionally trained as a labor and employment attorney. Family law is completely different in that in discovery than any other area of law where all the facts and all the details a lot of times aren't on the table until the person takes the stand. So any certainty you can provide is big. Yeah. And we'll take, I'm going to pop this question up here because it's directly with what, what you just went over. Um, so from David, why are financial records needed in discovery? You want to take that one first? Sure. Um, the, well, the reason in, in all of my family law cases, the issue of child support um, comes into issue, whether it's a dissolution of marriage, whether it's a petition for paternity, um, child support comes into play. And in Florida, we have a statute. Um, we, it's not up to the discretion of what you want to pay in child support. They look at the income, the gross income um, of each party. They look at, um, you know, and then of course, attorney fees, if those are at issue, they look at the financial resources of the parties. So in both child support computation and in attorney fees, whether or not one party is going to be responsible for the other party's attorney fees, finances are always involved. Um, so that's why financial discovery is important because you could file a financial affidavit, but I've had issues where the other side has completely lied about what they make. And it wasn't until we did, you know, subpoena certain financial records that we found out, oh, this person's really making this amount. <laughs> you know, they, they completely lied in their financial affidavit. And the only reason that we knew that is because of the financial discovery that we did to get the, you know, their bank statements and, and everything else. Yeah. Basically asking for the receipts um, mm -hmm. for, for the numbers they provide on the mandatory stuff. So um, I'm going to answer this one. I'm not even going to ask. I think it's something that's very common. So I'm just going to address it. Do lawyers use financial records to determine how long they can drag out litigation from each side? Um, that's never anything that's crossed my mind. I would very much immediately like a case to end. That's going to be what's best for the kids. Um, if we can bring the parties together and have them come to a resolution without dragging things out because, 
it's it's not something that's that's enjoyable when you see someone that that's hurting going through this process so another another common another common issue you kind of brought up in your answer was you use the discovery tool to you've, you've been able in the past to uncover when the other party was maybe a little bit untruthful stretch the truth omitted things on their financial disclosures so as a lot of times we hear in family court that perjury doesn't get prosecuted you can lie you can do you can say really whatever you want and get away with it how how would you how do you deal with when maybe the opposing party is a little fast and loose with the facts, um, or and maybe opposing counsel as well too? Um, are you talking about like in motions where they they allege certain things that are yeah? Let's say like like for a request for a domestic violence restraining order, or even in the petition where they come out and they say things that are just patently untrue, but maybe tough to nail down. Yeah, well, that's where I hit him with discovery. And I, for instance, I'll just make a hypothetical. Um, if there, say that there was allegations that, you know, dad has mental issues, um, anger problem, you know, all these things. What I would do at that point is I do request to produce and I would say, please provide me all the evidence that you intend to use um, to prove these allegations, you know, um, and a lot of times you're going to find that they don't have evidence, you know, it, it, they're just allegations. Um, what I have done, I, I you know, I, I came off of a case that was highly contentious and the other side was notorious for um, fabricating and, you know, making false allegations about my client. Um, aside from hitting them with discovery, you know, as far as, uh, if you don't mind, can I shut the door? Because my no, yeah, you're perfectly fine. Yeah, one hundred percent. Let me let me just no, shut the door. So perfectly on. fine. Well, okay. while she's stepping away here, uh, we got a few minutes left, and then we are going to take some questions. So go ahead and drop your questions in the comments on Facebook or YouTube. If you don't want to make it a public comment, um, shoot me a DM at the Father's Rights Attorney, and we'll, we'll probably take a few questions from there. So I know we were back mid thought on um, your hypo where opposing counsel, go ahead. Well, what I was gonna say is what I do is I fight fire with fire. Um, you know, if, if, some, if there's allegations that are being alleged about my client um, and it's not stopping and every time I get in front of the judge, the other side opens up with, oh, and blah, this whole narrative of, of fabrications. Um, I try to find uh, things that are wrong with the other side <laughs> so I can equally go back and make allegations against them. You know, so it's not just completely us on the defense. Like I try to turn the tables so that we're putting them, the other side on the defense with certain allegations. Um, and then, you know, that I've tried that technique to kind of muddy the water so, it's, so the judge isn't continuously hearing negative things about my client. Um, but there's, you know, it's hard because uh, allegations, it's the nature of the beast. You know, you're going to have allegations in litigation that that's, you know, and it's up to the other side to prove those allegations. Um, in Florida, we have, um, and I don't, I'm sure they probably have something comparable in California. We have something called a 57105. Um, it's a sanction. So if 
we determine, you know, if the court determines that these allegations at the end of the day, you know, when you have your evidentiary hearing and these allegations can't be proven um, and you filed a 57-105, you can actually sanction the other side for not, um, you know, being honest with their allegations. Uh, you know, so because, you know, in Florida, a lawyer has a duty of, um, you know, investigating before they make allegations to, you know, to the mm -hmm. truth of the allegation. So if something's completely far-fetched and it can't be proven and it was frivolous to begin with and just a bunch of, you know, false statements, there are sanctions available in Florida that you can uh, ask the court to impose on the other side. Gotcha. Yeah, I think just about every uh, every state has has things like that. I think the biggest issue, especially around the DV stuff, is uh, it is he said, she said. So there's a lot of, I think, judges are very careful, even if they find that there's no merit to them of hitting someone who has alleged domestic violence. I guess that's that's a really bad way of putting it. But sanctioning that individual or that attorney for making those allegations. So um, we'll go ahead and we'll hop in and we'll start taking some questions from the viewers. So this is a bit of a long one, but I'm going to kind of we'll shorten it a little bit from Scott here. So what suggestions do you have for a father that faces false allegations in the in repeated department of I'm assuming DCF, DCF um, probably uh, Department of Child and Family Services, Child Welfare, something along those lines? So, all right. So, yeah, okay. go ahead. Oh, okay. I, well, I, I handle dependency cases, um, so I'm very familiar with this. Um, I actually think, to be honest with you, in dependency court, um, you get a lot more protections than you do in family court because now you're talking about someone's right to parent being at stake. And they usually have time constraints, you know, where where judicial review has to be done by a certain date and this has to be done by a certain date. And if you don't, if you can't afford counsel, the court has to appoint you counsel if you're in, involved in a Chapter 39 case. So I I actually like the the flow of a Chapter 39 case because it's more efficient and, you know, um, for the parent. But if you're getting repeat calls and you know, and it, it, this is another preponderance of the evidence, right? <laughs> to to mm -hmm. deem the kids um, dependents of, of the state. It's, it's very easy for someone to do this. And it really angers me, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's it's hard because if, if, if it was merely just calls into DCF and then they shut the case without doing a petition for shelter, they just, you know, they just opened it for investigation and they shut it within the 60 days in Florida, they have 60 days to, to conduct the investigation. Then around eight or nine times, cause I actually dealt with this myself <laughs> before I became a lawyer um, around eight or nine times, you can actually get the person who's been calling it in on harassment but if it's gone to a shelter petition that means that the investigation that the dcf worker has found something to warrant the allegations so it's going to be a little harder to get somebody on harassment if the department has actually now found do you know what i'm saying like no. to a finding that there is um suspected abuse um and again it's a very low threshold um i'm not saying that there was abuse it's just you know you're you're two different two different areas, I guess, you know, if, if you, if you get to that petition for shelter, 
um, it's going to be hard to stop somebody from harassing you if that's what they're doing. If you don't get the, to the you know the point of a shelter petition and it's merely an investigation, then you if they've done it multiple times, you can get them on harassment, and you can file complaints. Um, you know that they have you know uh, wrongfully filed DCF complaints and falsified claims and that sort of thing. Gotcha. So another one of those situations where if you sit on your hands and do nothing, the allegations can, can can continue to come. But if you go out and you actively pursue something, you can you can kind of quash those. Yeah. All right. So we'll go to more kind of a, a technical child support question. This is going to vary from state to state. Some states automatically terminate child support. Others do not. So when my child support order went into effect, my document said I had to pay until daughter graduated from high school or turned 18. She graduated two months ago and they're now telling me that I have to pay until she turns 18. So what, what are the child support uh, rules in the state of Florida and do they terminate automatically or do you have to actually terminate them? Well, they, they usually will say that um, child support would be uh, paid until the child either turns 18 or um, if they turn 18, you know, during their senior year of school and they haven't graduated yet, then you would pay until they they graduate, whichever comes um later i think <laughs> um it, you know but sometimes i mean it would be hard to say because this could be a marital settlement agreement in which they've can you know they've consented to this clause um i i don't really see this clause done you know where it says um you know that it would only go until high school if the child's not 18. it usually goes till the child's 18. Mm -hmm. um, so if the, if it was something that was consented to um, that deviates from what normally I would see in an MSA agreement, then you can always bring somebody on contempt, you know, if they're failing to do it. But um, as far as that goes, it's usually till they're 18 years old. Um, or if they turn 18, um, it's, you know, in the middle of their senior year, it's till they graduate. Gotcha. Yeah, it's similar out here in California. And mm -hmm. then you typically, the, the agency out here is Department of Child and Family Services or Department of Child Support Services. And you actually have to go petition to end the child support. It can, it will keep going until you actually make that petition yeah. to them. So, all right. So this, this is another one, probably not as common, but um, so from uh, Alex Way, one, two, two, five. So if a father has, has had primary has had primary custody has had the child alone and it's they've been essentially abandoned by the mother and that mother's attempting to come back into the picture how should that father handle that um i mean are you talking i mean here, here's the thing it there's so much that i would want to know to be able to answer this question thoroughly um i'd want to know the circumstances as to why the mother had initially abandoned the children um you know i mean for instance say it was drugs or something i'm just hypothetically speaking um you know obviously you're going to have concerns if the mom wants to come back in you're going to want proof that she's sober you know and things like that or that she's rehabilitated mm -hmm. herself um you know if if the mom i mean you don't usually see parents just up and abandon their kids 
it, you know, I mean, it happens. It happens, right? But you know, you there, you would wonder and question the why behind that. And if it was something that would be detrimental to the child, um, then obviously you're going to have your concerns about them coming back in. And a court would too. A court would too. You know, all of a sudden they want to jump back in on a 50-50. Um, but again, it's hard, you know, I, I would just want to know um, the circumstances as to why they left initially. And if it was something that, again, posed a risk to the child, I'd want to know that that was dealt with before they came back in and had a role with the child, you know, on a more, um, you know, extensive level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every, everything in family court, everything involving this is so fact dependent. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of what, what, what has gone on and what should. At the end of the day, if there's no risk to the child, if it's been four years, depending on their age, it's there, there may be that this, that may be the situation where reunification therapy, regardless of the age of the child, different things needs to occur to ease them back in. But you, you probably at least want to foster a, at least a relationship, not saying that you need to say, Oh, we're going to go 50, 50 right now with a 16 year old and they haven't been involved in a decade, but you pro you probably at least want to attempt to foster some sort of relationship. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I always think to myself, you know, because I, I deal with highly contentious situations. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I always, I, I look at this pretty deep, deeply. And I think, you know, what if, what if something happened to me and my child had no relationship with the other parent? Um, is that really in their best interest? So I would want, you know, to, to make sure that the child had a relation a healthy relationship of course you know you've got circumstances where you've got drug addicts and i mean you've got you know it it, it can put the child at risk um but I, I just always look to myself and think you know despite whatever i feel about the other parent you know maybe we didn't get along or whatever um if something happened to me and i passed away suddenly you know who's my is there is my child gonna have known their other parent you know i think i i don't know you know i just i think it's important really important for children to know know both sides regardless so but then the question is that's why again on this question i couldn't really say because i don't know the circumstances that led to the abandonment to begin with so very very true so we'll go we got uh chris cole here um so I'll take this one first. So can child support be adjusted if the custodial parent remarries? Um, in California, it's it's very it's essentially gross income. There are a few things that deduct from your gross income and then your timeshare. Um, could child support be adjusted if the other parent remarries? Um, in California, where that would come into play would be if marry if that when they remarry they end up in a different tax bracket, and that could actually lower their gross income number that gets used for the calculation. Um, so it wouldn't directly, but the tax bracket could uh, cause an adjustment. So how would they, do they, do they do anything to, with that situation in Florida? Yeah. Um, what they do too is um, if you say that you weren't, or you were imputed at minimum wage or something like that, um, and then you remarry and then you have a portion of your bills being paid by your spouse, um, that portion of your bills, they would they would look at that as income in the state of Florida. Um, so, you know, anything that would lower your um, your bills, you know, if you're getting any sort of financial assistance 
uh, that would lower your bills, um, they would factor that in as income as part gotcha. of the statute. Yeah. Okay. So, and then we'll, I guess we can kind of expand that a little bit. I think one area where that does have an impact typically in the state of California, if the other party remarries, that ends the, we call it spousal support out here. I don't know if your spousal support or alimony in the state of Florida. So in that situation, the remarriage, um, the state of California that would be grounds to go back and, and get rid of that, that spousal support. Do they do anything with that in Florida? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, if they, it, it, it again, it's so it depends too because you've got MSA agreements that people will, you know, settlements that they come to that says certain clauses. Um, but typically, if they do remarry and they don't have uh, the need, I guess, uh, you know, for the spousal support anymore, uh, you can go back and you can get it modified if you're getting alimony. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So we're, we're coming up here on the hour. Um, and so one thing I definitely want to leave everyone with, I know you've, you've told us that you, you do service the entire state of Florida. So how can our viewers get a hold of you? Oh, it, you um, just go to lesleyannlaw.com, L-E-S-L-I-E-A-N-N-L-A-W.com. <laughs> um, -E -E -N -N and that's my website. And it has all my information on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then you, you do service statewide. Do you, are there any areas that you primarily focus on or, or that, that are most common? Um, the, my most common counties would be the South Florida counties. Um, I have a lot of cases in Miami, uh, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach. Um, I have a probably my most, my highest caseload is in Brevard County um, in Orange County because that's where I'm, I'm home based out of. Mm -hmm. um, then I also have a chunk of cases in Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, um, even Ukaloosa County, like these like random counties, you know. Um, so I don't really, um, I, I don't have a whole lot up in the Panhandle area. Uh, we're in a it's a different time zone too. Like Ukaloosa County is a different time zone for me. But mm -hmm. most of the counties are um, your metropolitan, like the bigger counties, you know, like the Miami or the Pinellas. Yeah or Orange County, which is central Florida. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you um, uh, for taking the time away from your family tonight to, to drop some knowledge for the viewers. Tell us about what goes on in the state of Florida and, and give all of our viewers that advice. So thank you for, for spending an hour with us tonight. Thank you, um, Mark. <laughs> I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, no problem. So you can find her if you're in the state of Florida, you're in the market for representation lesleyannlaw.com and um, get a hold of her and um, go from there. So, so Leslie, thank you so much thank for coming you. on. Uh, for the viewers, we'll, we will see you guys again next Thursday night. Uh, we'll be announcing the guest here shortly for that. And um, everybody have a good night. Thank you.